In the popular comic strip, Peanuts, Lucy, as she often does, asks Charlie Brown a question. Why are we here on this, work, on this earth? Now, if you think about it, what a magnificent, philosophically rich question. To which Charlie Brown replies, to make others happy. And so she starts spinning that around in her mind for a moment. And then she retorts. She comes back at him with another question. Then why are the others here? Right? So if they're, if, if, they're, if they're here for me to make others happy, what are they doing here? Right? Well, sometimes we struggle with that, uh, that question. What, what are all these other people around here for if I'm supposed to be doing all the work to make them happy? In some respects, this is Paul's challenge in these 10 verses. Uh, it's a challenge to believers. If the Spirit is truly at work in your life, if He is truly controlling what you do and what you say, then it will be demonstrated in the way that you respond. It will be demonstrated in a transformed life uh, by the way that you engage others. Uh, Folks, the reality is the natural man, the natural response, uh, any person, because of our sinful nature, does not naturally treat others in a way that honors God. We have to acknowledge and see that at the outset. You don't naturally respond in a God-glorifying way towards others. It's just not natural. We need grace, right? We need help. We have that help, and that's Paul's point. You have the Holy Spirit of God that enables you to respond as you ought to respond to one another. And many times, if we are not careful, we can make being a follower of Jesus about everything other than what it truly is. The greatest component, the greatest evidence that you know Jesus and are a follower of Jesus is the way that you treat others. That's it. He said, that's an oversimplification. Well, it's Jesus' definition, right? (laughs) It's the apostles' definition. It's Paul's definition here in this passage. And I want you to see that. That is something that if you've been around for a little while at Graceway, we have been seeing that in every single book of our entire New Testament. comes back to that issue over and over and over and over again. The way you treat others is a tangible demonstration of your real relationship love for God. And it's the only real tangible demonstration that there is. So let's look together tonight as we walk through this. I want you to note with me that spiritual living is most tangibly demonstrated by doing good, genuinely caring for others, especially fellow believers especially each other, right? Now, remember the focus of Galatians. And and there are a myriad, if you go online and search Galatians, you'll find all kinds of themes. Uh, But what I want us to remember about Galatians, Paul is laying out for us what the gospel of Jesus is really about. Paul longs for these believers to understand the truth of the gospel message and to reject a false 
message, a false message about the gospel. And that false message is tied to what? Merit. That if you do the right thing and you respond the right way and you act a certain way, then you can merit favor with God. That is not true. It's false. You're standing the same as a son, natural born or adopted. Your standing is based solely on the fact that you are a son. That's it. That's Paul's point. Your merits are grounded in Jesus alone. That's your standing before God. And if you don't have a relationship with him, you have no standing. That's it. That's Paul's point throughout, right? And in some respects, obviously, that's a little bit of an oversimplification. Now, one of the vital applications of the gospel for the believing community is, again, connected to our love and care for one another. I want you to look back, and we'll, we'll, we'll reference this in a minute, but chapter 5, right in the middle of that, as... Paul is working them through this process, transitioning from his argument at the end of chapter 4, right, about slavery. He says, hey, you're free. Now, that freedom, again, is connected to merit. You're not, you're free from trying to gain a, a position with God, right? That's the freedom he's talking about. But that freedom is not a license, chapter 5. Micah did a good job of bringing that out. That freedom is not license, Look at what he says in verse 13. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now that's going to come back up in our text again, verses 7 and 8, going to address that issue of the flesh again. But he says instead, serve one another through love. This is very, very critical that you get this. Look at verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Remember what I said a minute ago? Love your neighbor. Paul says the exact same thing. This is a quote from the law, Exodus, and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So we are in essence fulfilling God's design, even the design of the law, which we could argue is an ethical guide. This is how you're supposed to rightly relate to each other. This is how you're supposed to rightly relate to God. So part of being controlled by the Spirit is evidenced in our action toward one another. That's really the focus now of these 10 verses. Our actions towards one another. The practical implications of that. And so in a sense, Paul's kind of given us a practical guide to living out a spirit or living in a spirit-controlled way toward our fellow believers. So first thing he's going to deal with, he's first going to deal with, in, in a narrower sense, a believer, a fellow believer who is in sin, who is struggling with sin in some way, shape, or form. What do we do about that? Now, initially, it appears like, and if we're not careful, uh, and many of you have heard this done with Galatians 6, 1 to 10, so many times it, 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 it's bad, right? It's, it's not good. But we take verse 1, and we'll peel that out of there, and we'll talk about that. And then we take verse 7 and 8, and we peel that out of there and talk about that. 
and then we'll take verse 2 and we'll peel that out of there and talk about that. Listen carefully to me. Verses 1 to 10 is intertwined. It goes together. It goes together. We got to keep keep it together as God inspired it, right? So initially, he's going to address somebody who is in sin. So what do we do? First, he gives the hypothetical, right? If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing. Now, a couple things are very interesting here. He's giving us an if. This is kind of a, a possibility type of statement in the original. But the sin that he mentions, he says any but the sin that he mentions is a word that we get our word transgression from. It's used several times throughout the New Testament. This particular word is not used very often. But the times that it is used, several of them are uh, an extreme almost kind of transgression. In this sense, it's like a denial of the faith. Now, Think through the issues in Galatians. What if a brother is promoting a false gospel, right? What do I do? I go to him, right? How do I go to him? He's going to describe that. Now, obviously there's application for any sin, any transgression, but I think we're specifically addressing those who are struggling with this false assertion about the gospel. That in order to have a right standing with God, you have to be circumcised. In order to have a right standing with God, you have to keep certain days or fulfill certain laws. Paul says, no, that's, that's false. You are adding, in essence, to the gospel. No, we cannot do that. So I think the wrongdoing, I, I think it's tied to that. Now, here's what's fascinating. If I'm not struggling with that, why do I need to be careful? It's interesting what Paul says. So look at the way that he frames the rest of this. You who are spiritual... And then he gives us one of four. There's four commands in these 10 verses. This is the first one. Restore. Now that is a command. You and I are commanded to restore one who is in sin. Now, we can't do that with somebody that isn't truly part of the body. Right? In our context, that demands membership. Listen, that's why membership matters, because there's real accountability. You say, well, thanks for telling me that. I don't want accountability. We'll see that we have other issues, right? That, that goes to Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling and, and things of that nature. So we have to be careful that we understand. And, and, and again, if we think about the church as a family rather than a governing body, I don't know about you, even though families at times can be a little prickly or can be a little weird, let's be honest, we're coming off of Thanksgiving, right? Some of you had some odd interactions at Thanksgiving. You know, everybody has a weird Uncle George or Bart or, you know, heaven forbid, my nieces and nephew, Dave, you know what I mean? So everybody has one, you know, and you had to interact with them three days ago and that still may stick out in your mind. However... 
Who in their right mind would say, I don't want to have any family at all? None. I want out. I don't want to have any family, anytime, anywhere. Now, teenagers at times, they reach a point where they say, I don't want to be part of this family. Or, I don't want to have any family at all. But just remember, they're going through a crazy stage. No, no thinking person says, I want no family anywhere at all. Even if mine are a little weird. Right? Even if mine are a little difficult. Even if some of the extended ones drive me crazy. That's okay. Nobody says I don't want family. So in essence, that's the church. That's the image that's used of the church many, many times. And in our, in our first introductions to the church as Graceway Church, that's what we focused on was that family view. So when somebody in the family is hurting, is struggling, is having an issue, what does the family do? We come alongside, right? Well, certainly that should be the case for God's family, for the church. That's what Paul is calling us to do. Now, who comes alongside? The spiritual. So you say, well, yeah, that, that's not me. I mean, that's a special class within the church, spiritual. That means the leaders, or that means the pastor. You know, That means uh, if somebody leads a Bible study, that means them. they can do that, right? But what I want us to understand is context. So when Paul says, if you're spiritual, you come alongside. Who is Paul talking about? He's not talking about leaders. He's not talking about pastors. Who's he talking about? Every single believer that has the spirit of God, chapter 5. That's who Paul's talking about, right? Now think about this for a moment. In chapter 4, Paul says that God has given us, the Galatians, his spirit because we are sons, because we're his children. In chapter 5, verse 25, he calls us to live by the spirit. So based on that, those who walk by the spirit, chapter 5, verse 16, are led by the spirit, chapter 5, verse 18, and are keeping step in the spirit, chapter 5, verse 25, they are the ones who are to come alongside and reestablish somebody in the faith. You see, this is actually about us as God's people living out the truth of chapter 5. If you have the spirit, you are spiritual and are to restore your brother. Right? That's the call. That's the call. Okay, so he goes on. Restore such a person how? With a gentle spirit. The literal idea of that word gentle is humble. A humble, a compassionate, a kind, a gentle Spirit, the way that you approach them is never with an, I gotcha, I caught you, ha ha, I knew you were a sinner, right? Now, whether we like it or not, we've all kind of experienced that. We've all seen somebody engage, hopefully not us personally, but maybe us personally with that spirit. Ha, I gotcha. That's not God honoring, and it's not spiritual. We've already messed the process up if that's our approach. There needs to be a gentleness, a genuineness, a care for what? What's the goal? What's the command? 
The command is confront people and put them in their place. No, that's not the command. It's not. What's the command? Restore. Restore. If I'm trying to restore somebody, how do I do that? Well, probably punching them in the mouth isn't the way to do it. If you put your arm around them, that could help, right? So this is the approach of God's people. And folks, to be honest with you, this approach has a far greater impact. Now, there are some that we come upon who say, no, I'm not going to turn from that. Well, what do we do? Well, there are other passages that address that, right? Matthew 18 addresses that. Titus 3 addresses that. 2 Thessalonians addresses that, right? Um, the issue there for Paul was work. If any doesn't work, neither should he eat, right? So Paul says, be done with that guy. Um, it's important that we understand there is a process if somebody says no, but our approach should never be, I got you or I'm going to get you, right? That's not biblical, and it doesn't honor the Lord. So come to this one humbly. Why? Because there is an inherent danger. The inherent danger is that you will also be tempted. Now, think for a moment. Think of the issue, the sin that Paul is confronting, this false gospel. Think of the mindset of the person promoting this false gospel. If I get circumcised, if I keep these rules, and I accept Jesus, then I'm right with God. Now, who's the one who's earning that? Well, it's the person who's getting circumcised and keeping certain laws. Oh, and by the way, I accepted Jesus, right? They're earning this. This is theirs. Now, what if I approach them with my own merit, my own standing in, in mind? Am I not in danger of, of, of coming away the same as, as they are as I approach them? You see the danger? You see the connection? But it all goes back to the issue that Paul is addressing from the very beginning of the book, this false gospel. Now, obviously, Galatians 6.1 has broader implications for how we approach somebody who is struggling with sin. But remember, I think contextually, this is tied to those who are struggling with this false gospel and the way we approach them. Now, he moves in verse 2 to, I think, the primary, the overarching in all 10 verses, kind of focus, all right? Look at what he says in verse two. So carry, second imperative, carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, from the very beginning of Galatians, we're dealing with the law and misperceptions about the law. What Paul does here is come back and connect the law to Jesus, connect the law to Messiah. There is a law that characterizes Messiah. What is the law that characterizes Messiah? Remember what he says back in chapter 5, verse 14? The whole law is fulfilled in, in one word, right? Love 
your neighbor as yourself. So in essence, when you come alongside and help a fellow brother carry their burden, and folks, sometimes that burden is heavy because it is a blind spot. Think this through for a moment. Remember that some of the folks, I think, that are struggling with this issue of circumcision and the law and special days, they're Jews. Their entire life has been characterized by those truths. And they're saying, how do we dump that and still be true to God? This is a genuine struggle. And that's why I think Paul comes here in verse 2 and he says, carry one another's burdens. Some of those folks, we have to come alongside in almost like a three-legged race. You ever done a three-legged race with somebody that's real small? It's just easier to pick them up. (laughs) Right? Some would say it's maybe not fair, but it is easier. It is easier, right? Um, This is almost the imagery here. Carry one another's burdens. You're coming alongside and you're helping them carry this. You're helping them in in their growth trajectory as a follower of Jesus. And the truth is, every single believer is on a different trajectory. That's not bad. It's a reality. But help one another is Paul's plea. Serve one another by carrying those burdens. So the person whose life is under the control of the Spirit, he comes alongside and he helps carry, at times it would seem, a physical burden, right? Like a couch. We've done a lot of that at Graceway, moving people in and out and around. Emotional burden, a spiritual burden, right? At times, something that feels as if it's threatening to crush that fellow believer. This is the fulfillment of the law of Jesus. Now, it feels as if in verse 3 that Paul is shifting away from this talk. He's not. Paul is not moving from this initial discussion about ministering to a brother in sin. So look at what he says. If anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, what is the perception? If I get it, If I understand this issue and you don't, what's my natural inclination? I'm better than you, right? (laughs) You You just don't get it, you know? Paul says, no, 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 no. That should never be our thought process if we're truly loving our neighbor, right? That's not what's going through your mind. You're not thinking, oh, man, I'm better than you. I'm sure better than you, right? No, 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 no. This should not characterize our mindset, our focus. So look at verse five. He goes on and he says, let each person instead do what? Examine his own work. Now, there's a third command. You examine your own work. You examine your own standing. You examine your own relationship with God, and you make sure that it lines up the way it's supposed to line up. 
So in a sense, Paul is taking that warning from verse one and he's turning it back around on us and he's saying, listen, you need to do some real self-reflection, some real self-examination and make sure that your approach and your spirit and your attitude honors, exalts this law of Christ. Love your neighbor. And we do that as we carry their burdens and have compassion on them, even in the midst of a struggle, even in the midst of a struggle with transgression. The truth is, and this is a difficult thing at times for us to understand, because there is something in all of us that is inherently prone to compare. Their situation is harder than mine. Their situation is easier than mine. And that one's much more on the, uh, on the front of our mindset than theirs is harder than mine. We see somebody with a harder scenario, we go, oh, hallelujah, thank you for sparing me from that one. But then we look at other people and say, man, they're, they're, they got an easier life than me. That's not fair. The reality is it's, we've got to be careful because many times we don't legitimately compare ourselves to somebody else because each person truly is assigned a different load by the Lord. Your scenario, your life is different than anybody else's. So it's easy at times for us to look at somebody and say, man, they have it better. They have it easier. They're better off. Or they have a better spouse than me, right? It's it's easy for us to think that, and yet you don't know that. There's no way to know that. There's no way to fully comprehend what someone else is carrying. Even if that person sits down with you for an hour and and dumps all their problems on you, do you really think you now comprehend their load? We don't. And so Paul, in a sense, is saying, be careful the way that you look at each other because you don't fully understand what somebody else is carrying. So have compassion Have empathy with one another. And folks, that's a hard thing for us to do because the truth is, at times, when somebody comes to us and says, man, my life is so hard, or I've got this uphill thing, or I've got this struggle, there is something in us that says at times, "Ah, that's an excuse. That's a bad excuse. (laughs) That's a lame excuse. Or for some of us, we're deeply compassionate and we say, oh, my heart breaks for you, right? And then we have trouble sleeping that night because we're thinking about this person and what they have going or whatever the case may be. What Paul is calling us to is a genuine empathy, consideration of others. Think about this. Several times as Jesus looked on the crowd, what did he have for them? Compassion. How many times do we look at each other with a genuine compassion? Folks, that's the love of our Lord coming out when we do. And that's what Paul calls us to here. He goes on in verse 5. And in verse 5, I pointed this out to you because I wanted you to think. I always want you to think as you engage your Bible. But especially in verse 5, it almost feels like a contradiction of verse 2, right? He says, for each person will have to carry his own load. What what is Paul saying here? In essence, what Paul is suggesting is judgment day. 
So someday we all stand before God and we give account for our lives and our responses. So be careful how you judge one another because reckoning day is coming for you as well. Be careful. This incorporates the warnings that Paul is giving in verses 3 and 4, but now connects it to the final judgment when we all will stand before God and give account. So verses 1 to 5, in some ways, is kind of a narrow address of our fellow brothers who may be struggling with a sin. Specifically, how do we respond to all that? Okay, now he's going to broaden that a little bit, but it's still connected to our response to one another, verses 6 to 10. So in verse 6, he initially gives us this statement, let the one who is taught the word share. That word share is our fourth imperative. Share all his good things with the teacher. Now, I'll confess to you, as I began into this text, I had no thought of addressing this particular subject, right? (laughs) I genuinely didn't. But literally, Paul is suggesting to the Galatian believers, whoever teaches you, you ought to willingly share what you have. You ought to willingly give to support them as they teach you. That is, that is verse 6, what he's calling them to. And certainly it's more, it's more broad. The idea there has to connect somehow to financial. Paul likes this word. He uses it numerous times, most in Philippians. He uses it six times in Philippians because he uses it to describe the way those people, the Philippian believers, shared with Paul, supported Paul in his gospel endeavors. And he says to them, you're the only ones that did that from the very beginning. You're here in the only church that's done that since the start. Uh, but they did do that and were faithful in that. Now, he goes on in verse 7. Again, our temptation. And many of you have heard a message on sowing and reaping. And, and I want you to understand what you've heard in sowing and reaping. It, it's true, right? Uh, it is a, a natural reality. God has created his world in such a way that there is a reaction. Something will come out of our actions. He's he's created the world that way. It works that way. But has Paul been driving along on others, 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 just to come to verse 7 and, right? He springs off into right field somehow. No, no, that's not what happens. Paul is still addressing this idea of sharing, right? So look what he says. Don't be deceived. Another command, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, he will reap. Because the one who sows to the flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Now, a couple of things are going on here, and commentators differ on on what to do with this text. Some really do, and and I'll, I'll say this, and I hope you understand what I mean by it. Ironically, 
some of them kind of take this text as a statement of uh, our holiness and the necessity of holiness and the necessity of developing holiness. And in a sense, that, that's not inaccurate, right? But is that Paul's intent? Is Paul talking about how we engage each other, how we engage each other? And before he's done, he's going to come back to that in verses 9 and 10, if truly he's leaving that in verses 7 and 8. I don't think he's leaving that. Folks, I think that what this is talking about is sowing and reaping in the way that we engage each other. Have you ever interacted with a difficult person and thought in your mind, I'm not going to make it. And depending on who they were, or they're not going to make it. Right? You, you understand what I'm saying? But what if what Paul is saying is this? If I engage my fellow believer in the flesh, I'm going to reap a fleshly response. Think about the idea. What, what is he saying? You reap destruction. What's the idea of destruction? It's corruption. It's decay. It's the idea of a putrid corpse, right? Decomposing. Now think about it. What does Paul say in chapter 5 about relationships that don't honor, love your neighbor? Look, look what he says in verse 15. But if you devour, bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Well, that's pretty similarly strong language to a decomposing, rotting corpse, right? It's just fire is what's doing the destruction rather than the decomposing. And I think that's Paul's point. Many times we are deceived and we respond in the flesh with one another. And what does it produce? Destruction. It produces vile relationships, relationships that don't honor God. But if you will sow to the Spirit, eventually there is a harvest. Now, the difficulty for us is this. We think if I respond the right way this time, it should automatically yield a right response back. That's not the way this works. It isn't. It's not the way it works. Folks, there are some people that we engage with that we are going to have to engage with grace over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's going to feel like they're never going to get it. Keep engaging them with grace. And in due season, you will reap. Now, the reason that this text is difficult, I think, verses 7 and 8 specifically, is because of Paul's choice of words. He says in verse 7, he deceives himself, or excuse me, sorry, he's going to reap destruction, right? But in verse 8, or, or sorry, in verse 7 he says he'll reap destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit, he'll reap eternal life. So immediately, what do we think of? We think destruction is what? damnation, being cut off from God for eternity, right? And we think eternal life is what? That's, that's heaven with God forever. That's why we think this. But I want you to, for a moment, critically evaluate that interpretation in light of what Paul has already said in this book. Does that fit? 
I don't know that it does fit, right? But relationally, because of the context, it does fit that relationships are destroyed because of our fleshliness or eventually they are enhanced because of our spirit-controlled response. So how do we interpret or, or consider the idea of eternal life? I think this is what Paul is saying. I think this is what he's referring to. Paul, I think, has in mind the final consummation of our salvation that is ushered in by the return of Christ and his resurrection. I think Paul is using eternal life in the same sense that Jesus did. When Peter says he offers up, in a sense, this complaint, listen, we've left everything to follow you, to which Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one who has left his home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will, re- will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So there's a sense in which I think what Paul's calling us to is this. Don't be short-sighted in your engagement with others. There is a much longer view that we are to have in mind as followers of Jesus. There is a consummation that if if we will engage one another in a controlled, not fleshly manner, right? If we will consider others, love our neighbor, which fulfills the law of Christ, carry one another's burdens, as he says, that will ultimately certainly yield fruit in the end. And, truthfully, I think it will in this life as well. The the proof will be in the response, but it's going to take a while, which is where Paul's next exhortation comes in, right? Verse 9, he goes on and he says, So let us not grow weary. Don't get tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Paul is literally calling us to endure in the way that we engage one another. Don't give up. You will reap in due season. You will reap eventually. Endure. Keep on. And therefore... He summarizes the whole thing, verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all. That's very general. The good of everybody that we come in contact with. But then he narrows it down much more specifically, especially to the household of faith, especially to each other, especially look out for and care for one another. Evidence the Spirit's work in your life by your care for each other. This is the call. This is God's plan for His people. It's fascinating the interconnectedness throughout this passage of the corporate involvement and the personal involvement. My responsibility and our responsibility. My responsibility and my responsibility to the whole. He goes back and forth almost every other verse. Verse 1, a 
corporate response, you restore. Verse, the end of verse 1, an individual accountability, watch for yourself. Verse 2, a corporate responsibility, carry one another's burdens. Verses 3 to 5, an individual accountability. Everybody examine yourself, you individually. Verse 6, a corporate responsibility, congregants supporting a teacher. Verses 7 and 8, an individual accountability. Verses 9 and 10, a corporate responsibility. Believers should do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. What a charge. If you and I are going to live out, spiritually live out the work of the Spirit in our lives, it's most tangibly demonstrated by doing good and caring for others, especially our fellow believers. And the truth is for us, sometimes the hardest thing is, how do I endure? In the face of seeing almost no impact in the face of, man, that, that person is never going to respond the way I think that they should respond. They're never going to be spiritual back to me. Right? Or at least it feels that way. Yet he calls us to endure. William Carey uh, went to the field of India in 1793. If you can imagine at that time in history going to a foreign field, when he left, he didn't imagine that he would ever see some of his family again in this life. And yet he believed the call of God was on his life to go to India. And so he went. Oftentimes, for many, many years, he was discouraged and overwhelmed, but he was never defeated. He preached for seven years, every single week. Week after week, month after month, and not one person came to know the Lord. Not one. On December 28th of 1800, seven years later, Carrie baptized the first convert in the Ganges River. His name was Krishna Paul Willard, William Ward, excuse, excuse me, he witnessed this dramatic event and he wrote the following in his journal about the glorious reality of the gospel and its work in the lives of these people. And this is what he said. Ye gods of stone and clay, did ye not tremble when the triune name one soul shook you from his feet as dust. This was the beginning of a mighty harvest of souls that God granted Carey and his co-workers at their mission in India. And think this through for a moment. For seven years, didn't look like it was going to work. For seven years, discouragement. For seven years, loss. Death of children, death of spouse. Seven years, folks, seven years. Do you understand? That's how old Graceway is. Seven years. But Carrie just kept being faithful. Listen, this is God's call for us. Keep being faithful. And in due time, you will reap. Keep honoring Him by living under the control of the Spirit of God. And a harvest will come. Do you believe that?
Do you truly believe that? We can, we should, but we need grace.